Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm Guy Swarbrick and this afternoon I'm joined by board member Jonathan Griffin for what will be the first of a two-part episode, talking about cars he's owned and cars he's raced, about the recent Southern Alfa Day and about his role on the board helping Grant Richardson with section development. We've got a lot to cover, so we won't waste any more time. Good afternoon, Jonathan. Hello, Guy. Anybody who's met you will be in no doubt about your passion for Alfa Romeo, but when did all of that start? My first exposure to an Alfa was when I was very small in the uh, late 60s, when my uncle got a new red car. And I have only the vaguest memory of it, but it was a brand new GC1300 Junior. And he was a young doctor at the time. And the number plate was DOC 99. And so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was exactly the sort of car a rakish young doctor uh, would like to have, I guess, in about 1960. With, with a sideline in ice cream cones. <laughs> exactly. Well, no, but if you remember back to when you were small, you'd go to the doctors and the doctor would say, right, open wide, um, stick your tongue out and say 99. <laughs> well, they, uh, <laughs> well, they looked down your throat and tried to see if there was anything up with your tonsils. That, that, it, that's, um, you know, that was my starting point with Alpha. And how long was it between then and and actually owning one? It was quite a while. Um, my dad, although my dad liked cars, he he had company cars. He never had a second car except a Morris Minor for my mum. And my appreciation of cars back when I was quite young was limited to the Triumph Spitfire. I thought was marvellous because I thought there was an obvious synergy between the car and the fighter plane of second of the Second World War which, you know, again, in the 60s, it was only sort of 20 years and a bit past the end of the war. And people bought cartoons, you know, children's cartoons stacked full of war cartoon strips. It was all over the place, that sort of stuff. I thought the Spitfire was was great. It had to be fantastic. Uh, The other car that was interesting to me at the time was actually the Piper, which is quite a, a short run sports car, but it was built in Wokingham where I grew up and I used to see them driving around locally. They were literally made about a quarter of a mile away from where I lived at the time. But as far as Alphas are concerned, yes, I occasionally noticed an Alpha growing up, but it wasn't until my brother Gavin, my stepbrother Gavin, uh, was 17 that things changed. His father was a great car enthusiast and had a lot of sports cars and very indulgently bought his son a car for his 17th birthday. I'm sure it turned up on his 17th birthday. And it was a red Alpha Sud 1.3 Ti S-Reg. And oh, that was fantastic. The noise, the crackling exhaust note, and then the driving experience. Gavin is a very good driver. And although he was young, he passed his test very early and acquired this Sud and used to used to just roar, race round the roads in it. Uh, it was a very exhilarating car, but it didn't last very long um, for various reasons. And I had my interest in Alphas peaked, but he replaced it with the most fantastic car, which was a 1967 or 8 Julia Sprint GTV. So he had this car at the age of 17. He asked me if I would go down and have a look at it with him. And it was 
for sale in Hailing Island. So, yep, we, we jumped in, in the car, drove down to Hailing Island and found the guy who was selling it. And it turned out to be uh, a man called Ralph Lederman, who had raced uh, an Alfetta GTV Turbo in the Alfa Romeo Owners Club Championship. So not only did we go down and see this lovely old Sprint GTV, but we were introduced to this guy who was totally immersed in the racing of old Alphas. And so we spent quite a long time talking to him. And Gavin couldn't resist the Sprint GTV, which was bluette with uh, a lovely tan interior. So we drove drove back in convoy after the money had been handed over and Ralph threw in some spares as well. So there were a couple of spare cylinder heads and all sorts of other bits and bobs which came with the car. And that was really, although I'd known about the 105 series cars, it was really the start of my sort of modest obsession with, with that series of cars, with the uh, the lovely designs, uh, the fantastic cleanliness of the engine bay, the uh, the interesting handling, and, and just just the fun of of owning them. It, it was good, and it wasn't long before I acquired one myself. We'll come back to your racing career later on, but it sounds as though Ralph had quite a lot to answer for, really. Yes, he did. I mean, Ralph, as as is so often with people who race cars, they're often quite modest, actually, uh, about it all. They sort of take it in their stride, but you could see that it was a complete and utter obsession with him. He had a, a great big storage shed racked up with spares for various cars, and he, the way he spoke about the racing was designed to encourage young chaps to, yes, take more interest and, and hopefully join in. So, so Gavin's now got his 105. How long was it before you followed suit? He had that when he was 17 so that was in about let me think 76 that was about in about 80 i suppose that was about 84 and then in 85 he bought a 1750 gtv in chiswick and later in 85 i bought one as well so he we both had 1750 gtv mark twos and mine was quite a late one it was an l reg red 1750 gtv mark ii with a black interior and i drove down to boscombe near bournemouth to view it and of course if you remember back in the day before the internet if you wanted a car you would be down to the news agent to buy auto trader or southern auto trader or the free ad paper or whatever it was at the time or loot exchange and mart and you'd be thumbing through all those small ads running your fingers down the a's looking for the alphas and of course there were all sorts of quite exotic ones for sale back in the 80s and so a 1750 gtv advertised for i think it was about 675 quid i thought yes it sounds good i rang the guy and although he had an english name he spoke with an italian accent so i thought you know maybe maybe this car was going to be good i drove down to boscombe and looked at it and it, it was great it was sat there alongside a couple of other 105 series cars and he took me out for a drive in it and it sounded good seemed to go well and the deal was done i think i i think i ended up paying 600 pounds for it and drove it back and of course as is always the way with old cars the heart rules the head sometimes doesn't it and on a test drive it's not always immediately apparent that there are things that aren't quite as they should be. So the first thing I noticed on the on the way home was that the handbrake didn't really hold. You know, put it up three notches, nothing's happening. Put it up another couple, it is just a slight amount of, of of grip, but but nothing much. And then there was a vibration from the prop shaft. <laughs> and uh, uh, but I sorted some of those things out and had a lot of fun in it. But I'd always wondered why the boot was painted with thick black paint inside and. Uh, one day I was looking inside, I could see an edge. So I got a screwdriver and I sort of picked away at this edge and I levered it and it 
pinged up and I grabbed hold of it and pulled up a, a strip that had been plastered down on the boot floor. When I turned it over, it said Smedley's Garden Peas and <laughs> someone had gone to a great deal of trouble. Instead of welding a small patch on some holes in the boot floor, which would have taken not a lot of time, they intricately cut the Smedley's peat in to the shape that was required and then resined it down and then painted over it, sort of fillering the edges so it didn't look very obvious. So that was another lesson in, in using a magnet and tapping things and, and looking carefully when you buy an old car. But yes, that was my first, that was my first Alfa, a 1750 GT V Mark II. And I, I had it as my everyday car for a time. I used to drive to work in it. I used to, you know, I remember going down to Castle Coombe to watch the Alfa Romeo Owners Club Championship there in it with a couple of friends. And it was a fantastic introduction to running an Alfa. And the first of how many 105s that you've had now, excluding race cars? Quite a few. I haven't totted them up for you in advance, but I had, yes, the, I think I got the, the GTV through one MOT um, before it got, uh, well, it donated its best bits to some other cars, shall we say. Um, I had a 1750 Berliner um, in about 1987-88, which was a very interesting car. It, it performed well. It had lots of space. It was comfortable. And I really liked it. But because, you know, when you own a car, you often notice other cars of the same model. And uh, I joined the Alpha Club, I think it was late 85, and I thought it would be marvellous to go along to one of the club test days. So they would run test days at places like North Weald Aerodrome. You could turn up and go around the cones and uh, you got timed. So it was all a bit of fun. And, you know, one of the guys doing that was also in a Berliner and his name was Chris Taylor. And Chris drove his Berliner on the road, uh, but he put a cage in it or he had a cage in it and he also raced it at the weekend and I thought this was this was absolutely marvellous and I thought I will have a plan to do the same thing. I just had this idea of following Chris out onto the track and is sort of dicing through Paddock Hill Bend at Brands or whatever. The Berliner wasn't the best auto test machine. The, the, trend, the, the solid axle and the handbrake on the back in a long heavy car didn't make it as agile as some of the others but it was still uh, it was still good fun. But yeah, that was the only Berliner I've ever had. Uh, I, I took it to a guy with the idea of getting it race prepared and he put it up in the air and he looked at it all over and he got his little hammer out and started tapping the sills and I could see his, he, was sucking his, he was sucking his teeth and he said to me, well, do you know what? He said, if you were going to race this, he said, I'd replace the sills. If I was racing this, I think that's what you should do. So, of course, I asked him how much it would be. And then I sucked my teeth when he told me. I, I was a bit crestfallen. I wasn't sure what to do. But uh, he said, well, as it happens, I've got a Julia Super rolling shell over there, which just needs an engine and gearbox. And uh, that, uh, that uh, could come your way if you were interested. Oh, I know that's slightly diverting away from the ownership question, and maybe we should come to that later. But, um, but that was how I acquired my Julia Super. Presumably for, for less than the cost of replacing two sills. For not much more, actually, for not much more, uh, because at the time, uh, the alpha panels, if you were going to use genuine alpha panels, they were quite hard to come by. And we're talking, you know, 30 years ago. And uh, there were no real, there were really no repro panels of quality. Uh, they were just bent bits of metal that people had to do a lot of fettling to get to fit. So, and he knew that. He knew that it would be quite a lot of work to do the job properly. So I thought about it for not that long. Um, and in the end, I actually donated the Berliner to Chris Taylor as a spare. Uh, so he had a whole load of spare doors and, and panels and things. And I bought the Julia Super and, uh, and subsequently had it turned into, into a race car, which was, uh, which was great. As I said, let's come back to the racing. So yep. uh, what came after the 
after the Berliner. Well, the Berlin, what, what actually happened was that you know, I, had a, I had a number of, of alphas. So after the 1750 GTV, I, I mean, I had a, a 1.2 TI Sud. Um, which I love. I bought. I, I think I was the second owner from New, and the original owner was a dentist in Reading, about a mile from where I lived. And I picked it up. I think he'd had about ninety-five percent of the use of the car, <laughs> and I got the remaining five percent, because you could buy Alphasuds very cheaply uh, back in the mid eighties, mid late eighties. I think I paid about one hundred and ninety-five pounds for it with an MOT, quite a long MOT. But coming towards the end of that MOT period. And having run it through the winter, I could see that there was maybe a little bit more fresh air around the bottoms of the front wings uh, than than really there should be. And it did um, go to the scrapyard. Sadly, I mean, nowadays, of course, you you pull your hair out having to scrap a, a sud that could be rescued with a bit of welding. But then it was just an old, another old car. And uh, of course, as the numbers reduce, they uh, become much more cherished by you know the, the remaining ones become much more cherished uh, yes yeah, so i had the 1.2 ti and i followed that with a blue 1.3 ti the, the 1286 cc version which was um a lovely zippy engine uh, it, not many more brake horsepower on paper but it felt as though it had much more go it was much more of a much more of a sort of racing machine in inverted commas and i went on holiday with friends to yorkshire with that and filled filled it up with uh, the rucksacks we went we went hiking it, it did some good work and again it, it was another one that was um you know a, a young man's car you buy it cheap and you know that it's not going to last you more than a year or two at the most so when that came up for mot renewal and looked like it was going to need a load of work i sold it to someone i knew uh, by the name of jamie jamie porter of uh, the alpha workshop I mean, this is years ago. This is this is back in the 80s. And Jamie at the time was working on cars, hadn't set up the Alpha Workshop, but um, it was no surprise when he finally did. And that uh, that car, um, he turned into a Bimotore and put two engines. And uh, apparently it went, <laughs> it went very well. But what became of it after that, I've no idea. The last that I had was probably the lowest mileage alpha I've had, which was a 20,000 mile alpha sud TI green cloverleaf, a silver one, which was Y-Reg and went by the nickname of Wobbly because uh, first three letters of its number plate were WBL and it was a Y-Reg. Uh, and that was a great car. I had that for about, I think I had that for about five years, something like that, four years. Did quite a few miles in it. And um, that that really it wasn't as fast as some of its contemporaries in a straight line like a Golf GTI or even a, an XR 2i or 3i but boy was it fast around the corners and Alpha Sud's are legendary uh, in the handling stakes for a very good reason because the design of them is is just fantastic for for road holding and there's many of the smile that came onto my face just by braking not at all through a series of roundabouts and making rapid progress down the road, commuting to work back in the, the late 80s. It was, it was just such a great car to drive, such, such good fun and very fond memories. So, yeah, that was, that was the last Sud I had. And uh, I suppose that I had got, yes, I'd got rid of the Berliner by then.
then. In 1990, uh, so whilst I had the Silver Sud, I bought a blue, Dutch blue, uh, 1973 Julia Super 1600 from a club member called John Norbury, who lived in Hartford. He and his wife both ran Alphas. His actually was a, a blue 1600 GT Junior, and the Super was his wife Enid's car. So when they decided they were going to sell one, I bought that. And I had some work done to it. There were a few things that needed tidying up. And that has been me, with me ever since. And I still have it over 30 years on. Uh, so it's, it's been a second car most of the time or tucked up in the garage as a high days, holidays and Alpha Club show car. But from time to time when my main car went wrong or we had sold and we were looking for another one, it was pressed into service. Uh, when our son Gabriel was born, uh, my wife Fran used to drive him around in it to toddler groups or to uh, nursery school for a while. Uh, and so that has got quite a, uh, we've got quite an affection for that car in the family. And that's why it's, uh, it's still here when so many of the others have, have come and gone. And there's a couple of others that you've had for a while, aren't there? Yes, I suppose it depends what you mean by had for a while. Um, <laughs> I, you know. Well, I think until the five-year Alphasud ownership, we were we were averaging about a year a car. So. Yeah, that's right. Yes, that's right. They were they were two, a year to two years per car. Some of them overlapped a bit. Yeah, I'm trying to think what the the next one was. I dallied with a number of cars in the early nineties. I bought a couple of Alpha seventy fives. Um, so I had a couple of Alpha seventy five one point eights, which I used as road cars, and I really liked those actually. Um, nice revy engine and uh, great handling. And I had a, a left hand drive one point six, a French car which was great as well, which a friend asked me if I'd sell it to him. And I said, yes, of course. I had a 75 Twin Spark, which I bought needing a couple of jobs done, including a rear wheel bearing, I remember, and sold that for a profit. And I did, I, I bought and sold several of these cars just casually. I bought them as my road car, did some work and sold them, made a little bit of money to pay for racing that I'd started in the 90s. I had a couple of three litre 75s, which were absolutely awesome. Anyone who's had a Busso V6 engine car knows exactly what I'm talking about. Off a roundabout, booting a 75, it would adopt a a fantastic angle up the road and <laughs> you'd, you'd, be, you'd be turning into it as it went uh, as you went straight along the road but at an angle and of course the just the sound of the motor was was fantastic so i'm just trying to think what, what else i had in fact the newest alpha i have had was a 145 green cloverleaf which was about a 97 car and you know to give an, you an idea of when that was that i had that before my son gabriel was born and he's nearly 19 so it was relatively new at the time and again i bought it in east london with it, it was missing one of its gears it was making some fun noises but it was very cheap it clearly needed some attention but I took it to A.D. Hawkins at AH Motorsports and he uh, well he's a very competent chap he looked over it uh, fixed it all gave me the bill and I ended up with a really nice uh, 145 cloverleaf for not too much cash and I thought fantastic here we go we've, we've got a car that'll be absolutely fine for Fran to run around uh, in uh, taking taking this, the new arrival around but of course what you don't realize is that with cars like that you've got to lift babies into the back seat. You've got to slide the seat forward, lean over and lift this hefty baby in the car seat into the back. And within, I'd say probably within about two or three weeks of having Gabriel, 
Fran's back had gone from trying to lift him into the back. So I had to take over the lifting and then I started getting a bad back from lifting in, him into the car. And, oh, we had to get rid of the car. We swapped it for a, a five-door Fiat at the time, moving away from Alpha, which was um, which was sad. But again, a good friend of mine said, oh, can I buy it? And it disappeared very quickly. I didn't even need to advertise it. So that was, yes, that was the most recent Alpha I've had, the newest one. Uh, but of course, I've had Alphas the whole of the intervening time, the, the blue super that uh, that I mentioned and you said I have some others I do uh, I have I have a an old original right hand drive UK delivered uh, Julia 1600 Ti which is a lovely moss green color and there was a little bit of a story uh, about uh, finding that and actually managing to acquire it so uh, Fran's family live in Scotland and we were visiting them and I saw on Auto Trader uh, <laughs> because I just couldn't resist flicking through the <laughs> auto trader while I was up there. I saw, actually, really, for 2004, a relatively rare ad for a 105 series car in auto trader. And it said, you know, Julia Saloon. And 1964. I thought, 1964? Well, there really are no early Julia Saloons in this country. There are a handful of original right-hand drives that are actually going. And I persuaded my in-laws that it would be great to drive from... Uh, between Glasgow and Edinburgh, all the way down to the Ayrshire coast uh, for a lovely day out at uh, the seaside, so I could uh, slip off and have a look at this uh, Julia TI, which I did. And I didn't pull the wool over their eyes; they knew what I was up to. But while they while they went off and enjoyed the uh, the views on the coastline, I met up with a a guy who ran a garage in Girvan uh, on the Ayrshire coast. Very nice man, uh, and. He said, yes, I also have uh, a farm up in the hills and the car is currently in the barn up there. So we jumped in his car and uh, we went up through about six or seven gates that he had to get out and open and then shut behind him up to the farmhouse, which was an old stone place with a huge stone barn with three arches in the front. And I could, you know, I could feel the excitement of you know, waiting. Um, the hairs went up on the back of my neck. I knew that this old car was going to be in the barn. And we walked up to the door on the far left and in. And it was a little bit dark in there, but some light was spilling through on the far end. And I could see a shape under sheets. And it was unmistakable, you know, that three box Julia Saloon shape. And we went up, he pulled the sheets off. And I, yeah, I, it was amazing. There was a car there that had was really so original it was it was amazing it had it looked as though it had its original paint i mean to be fair the tires looked like they uh, were probably from the 1960s and it was just which is less desirable than original paint less <laughs> absolutely i mean I, I yes there was another story there i mean the, the tires were quite wooden but to cut a long story short i looked around it and i just knew that i had to buy it you know these opportunities don't come up very often especially when it's something that you really appreciate and, and would like to have. So I thought, well, I'd try negotiating with him. But he said, he said, he said, young man, he said, I know you've come from London. And, uh, you know, I, I knew that that meant really that there was no way I was going to negotiate. So I, uh, I said, OK, I will buy it. And so I paid him the money he was asking. And that was the first time in my life and probably just about the only time I've ever seen hundred pound notes because he wanted cash, obviously. And I had to go to the bank in Glasgow and get the money in cash and it came in hundreds. <laughs> so I had 60 £100 notes, paid £6,000 for the car. 
And, um, you know, I, it was a lot of money at the time. And I thought, am I doing the right thing? Because you never know that the values of those cars at that time um, were not as high as they are now. And I thought, well, maybe I'm paying over the odds. But, but I, I still thought it's so original and I know that I can conserve it and look after it. And uh, it will be uh, a, it will be, you know, a nice thing to to be able to bring out into the open and so so that's what I did and he did say that he'd bought it from the original owner and he'd seen it in a garage in Ayrshire in the 60s when he was a young mechanic there so he'd known the car from when it was new and when it came up for sale um, I think probably when it was around 10 years old something like that maybe a little bit more he bought it for his wife um, but of course it turned out she didn't really like it that much and so it sat in the showroom of his garage uh, for many years, apparently, and hadn't been more than 10 miles from Girvan for probably, I don't know, 25 years, something like that, uh, when I bought it. And the collecting of it was interesting. I, I thought, well, I've got no tools with me. I've got no backup except Fran and Gabriel. So I need to be prepared. I went to Halfords. I bought oil. I bought a fuel can, I bought a zippy case of tools, a tow rope, some jump leads, some WD-40, and probably some other things I can't remember, brake fluid I think I bought. Got as many things as I reasonably could, and on our way back from seeing the in-laws, we diverted via Ayrshire to the garage where the car was, ready and waiting, and uh, off I drove. You know, wave goodbye to, to the, um, the nice garage man, and off I went. This was October 2004, so it wasn't cold, but it was cool. Uh, we, we left Ayrshire and drove down to the M74 and onwards, and that takes you down towards the, the border with England. And I realised once the car was at speed that there was no heat coming out of the heater. And the temperature dropped a little bit as the day went on. And actually, you, you know why people in vintage cars have got thick blankets wrapped around their legs, because it is really cold in cars with all that wind chill on them. And it does transfer through to the inside. But anyway, the car was humming along perfectly at about 50 to 55 miles an hour. Um, I had fuel, the oil pressure was holding up, um, temperature was good. And uh, I thought, yes, we're going to do it. We cruised down past Gretna Green into England and carried on. And then it started getting darker and I turned the side lights on. And when I did so, the, uh, the battery light on the dash just glowed faintly. And I thought, ah, hmm, the dynamo is obviously marginal on charging the battery. Uh, a bit later, it was darker still and I flipped it onto dip beam and then the, the light was coming through even more brightly. And I thought, oh no, I hope the battery's charged up well because um, this isn't looking good. And then it got fully dark and I was... Um, thinking things couldn't get any worse for the battery and then it started raining and so I was, fl I was flipping the wipers on and every time I put the wipers on the, suddenly the uh, the light on the dash became you know incredibly bright and I, I knew things were getting very bad when all the dash lights started flickering and we were down between Manchester and Birmingham somewhere and I could see it said I saw a sign for services and I knew that I just had to pull in uh, at the next services so did pulled in um, parked up and turned it off and I turned the key, I knew what was going to happen, nothing. <laughs> so called the AA, and the AA man came after about an hour, and he said, oh, we'll have you going again. And we popped the bonnet, and he got his big starter pack out, put the huge clamps fishing around in the engine bay, but he, I don't know what he, exactly what he did, but he shorted the voltage regulator, and there was a massive blue flame, and a smell of burning, and then he said, ah, I think I'm going to have to call for recovery. Um, 
and we certainly weren't driving anywhere else that day but that was the end of the story essentially got it towed home and tucked away in the garage and um, subsequently that car was brought back to life with the help of a, a very good guy in, in Suffolk, uh, Titus Rowlandson at Victory Garage, who was a great guy to use if you want to conserve a car. And so he stripped and cleaned everything. And we only replaced the bits that really needed replacing. So yes, of course, it had a new set of historic Pirelli Cinturatos. And it had some rubber bits, like brake hoses for safety, and so, some of the other hoses. But nearly everything on it is is as it was when I picked it up uh, and the only paint it's ever had in its life is a little bit along the sills which the previous owner said was done in the late 70s so it's a, a lovely original car with about 37,000 miles on the clock which currently is tucked up under sheets in my garage um, waiting for for the next outing next year hopefully and it it's not on its own in the garage is it no no it's not um, in that it's it sits, uh, yeah, I've got a little workshop, so it sits at the back of the workshop. And the reason I can't take it out at the moment is that there's a car in front of it. And that is um, a left-hand drive uh, Julia Saloon, a Julia 1600 Super from 1972. And that is that was a historic rally car. I saw it for sale on eBay in 2012. And I looked at it and I, I watched it in my eBay list and... I thought, oh, look at that. It hasn't bid up very high. I'm sure it's going to go quite a lot higher. So I, I picked a number which I thought, oh, I'd be happy to buy it for that. And I'm sure someone's going to pay a lot more. And with about 10 seconds to go, I placed the bid. I hadn't seen the car, didn't know anything about it. <laughs> um, I hadn't mentioned it to Fran. And um, of course, you get that little sort of thing on the screen that's that's sort of going round and round while while eBay is processing your bid. And then it popped up and said, congratulations, you're the winner. So I bought myself, sight unseen, a rally-prepared Julia Super, left-hand drive one. And uh, how exciting that was. I, I, I called Titus and said, Titus, I've, I've bought a car. Could you pick it up and, and take it back to your place and just give it the once over? Because I, I need to know... Um, the things that are good about it and the things that, that need doing to it. So he did. He, he picked it up, took it back, had a look, and it turned out that it was very good indeed. It had lots of good bits on it and it, a limited slip axle, a special one, um, a rebuilt gearbox, um, 45 Webers, and a special alcoholic suspension, which hadn't been mentioned in the ad, and all sorts of other bits, as well as a, a cage as well. So it had, hadn't looked quite as nice as one would like in the ad because it had been rallied with utility in mind. So it had Subaru Impreza seats in it. So I quickly swapped those out for some Ridgard leather rally seats, which are fantastic looking and suit the period of the car. And we, Titus was talking to me about the engine. He said, he said, this is a monster of an engine. It turned out that the engine had been built by um, Dave Hood for a guy who was racing a GTAM and had gone so fast up a mountain in France somewhere that he'd gone straight off the edge and wrecked the car. And the engine was about the only salvageable bit. And even then, I, I believe it needed uh, needed some work. But uh, Dave acquired it to put in a, in a racing GTA in the UK. But I believe that never really happened. And so it was sold to the guy who had uh, been building this Julia Super Rally car. And I inherited it with all sorts of um, interesting, interesting modifications, including very large inlet ports with um, slide-in reducers, which I think were some sort of auto-delta mod for racing at some point. So I'm sure someone out there 
knows more about them than I do. So yeah, we got that car back together, but we didn't put the monster engine in it. We used my um, Group N spec engine from the Alpha Championship of the 90s, which I still had. And uh, with a few modifications, um, so different pistons and a, a ported head, and that's the engine in the car at the moment. And it goes exceptionally well, about 165 brake horsepower, handles very flat, makes it a very good noise and i've used that to well i've used that as my show attendance car for the last two or three years and it's been it's always a, it's always an occasion to take that car out on the road it's a little bit too bumpy it's a little bit too noisy but it's always good fun is that the complete collection at the moment um, um it, it nearly is because i still have the race car that i've had uh, for 30 years and i do have another gt junior tucked up against a rainy day in a hidden location which uh, uh, may may come out at some time but that needs uh, that would need uh, a lot more work than i'm prepared to do right at this moment i just wanted to end this episode looking back on your role at southern alpha day this year uh, which i think most people would agree was an amazing event under the circumstances indeed under any circumstances well, I mean, you know, you, you're intimately involved yourself here, Guy, because, uh, of course, you you are a member of the Thames Valley section and involved uh, with the committee. So you know about uh, the organisation that's been required. But yes, this year has uh, been very difficult for the club, hasn't it? We've not been able to run the great events that we normally run. And so there's been an appetite for an event or any event that people could travel to uh, more widely and we were very lucky I think to be able to hook up with a great venue in Oxfordshire Stoner Park which is a very historic family home and deer park just near Henley-on-Thames and because it's a private park it's not open to the general public uh, just to wander about it has been possible for them to implement quite strict COVID-19 measures and in conversation with them they said yes we could run a car event for you. They're, they're well acquainted with doing that. They've run the VW National Day for many years and had events from the Bentley Drivers Club to Ferraris and they run a regular supercar Sundays as well so it is something they know about but clearly it was going to be a challenge with the need for social distancing at the current time but they had uh, a good safety measures plan uh, approved by the local environmental health uh, officers at uh, South Oxfordshire District Council and also by Thames Valley Police and so we could see that that there was you know a good chance we could run the event as long as national guidelines allowed it and so we set it up promoted it and then just with a week or so to go before the event uh, which was uh, the 19th of September uh, we <laughs> a new announcement, the Rule of Six, came out, which threw all the plans um, awry because we weren't sure whether that was going to affect, uh, affect the event. As it turned out, the safety measures for the event allowed it to go ahead on Saturday the 19th, which was, uh, as we speak, last Saturday, and it went exceptionally well. It was a beautiful day. The temperature was about 23, 24 degrees with blue skies, and I think we had about 380 alphas and just under 800 people. So that makes it the largest Southern Alpha Day that we've had. And it was, it was a great success. The location within the park is very picturesque. It's a natural bowl. So the cars were ranged upon uh, the slopes close to the house, which made for fantastic photo opportunities. And the cars were arranged in model parking. So there were some lovely older cars, 750 and 101 series Juliettas, uh, parked near to the house, uh, to Stoner House. And it went exceptionally well. Everybody I spoke to thoroughly enjoyed themselves and hope that we can go back there again in the future. 
yeah, I mean, despite being a member of the committee, I had I had almost no involvement in in organising the event, bar parking my nine three nine spider at the end of the spider and Brera line and and allowing people to park next to it. But I've, I don't think I've ever been to an event like that in National Alpha Day or a Southern Alpha Day and not had at least one moan from somebody about something. I'm sure part of that was the pent up demand and not having been to an event, but it just everybody was just so enthusiastic and so complimentary about the whole thing. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I think you're right. Uh, there was a pent up demand and probably people hadn't had anything else to compare it to either this year. So uh, it uh, it stood out uh, as a, a sort of memorable day, I hope, for most people. So, yeah, I think one of the things that impressed me at, at Southern Alpha Day was the was the variety of cars and, and the number of cars that I haven't seen um, together for a long time. There's probably more 75s and more Suds than I've seen in, in six or seven years at any Alpha event. What were the highlights for you? Oh, there were a lot of nice cars. I was really delighted to see so many 750 and 101 uh, Julias and Juliettas turn up. Uh, some absolute beauties there, including uh, a sprint, that an early sprint that had been pulled out of a barn somewhere. It had Lebanese plates on it originally, and it had been restored to perfection an absolute beauty. There was also um, an SS, a red SS that turned up not for very long, unfortunately. I didn't get a, a chance to look very closely, but the design of those those uh, cars is absolutely fantastic. Uh, the highlight for me, I think, probably was John Dooley's Alpha Sub TI, uh, which was parked in pride of place at the top of the drive. And what a historic racing car. Uh, John drove that little car to third place, I think, in the 1981 British Saloon Car Championship. And it was absolutely brilliant to see it at Southern Alpha Day. It was a fitting tribute to John. And I'm sure he would have been delighted that it was there. And it got so much attention, Guy, during the day. People taking photos of it with the backdrop of the house and the other cars. It was marvellous to see. And the I should mention Chris Whelan, who is the current owner. He acquired the car from John and it was in pretty dreadful condition having been stored in one of John's barns for, for many years. But he spent a lot of time and resources on getting it back together and restoring it to a fantastic state. And the best thing of all is that he actually still races it. So the actual car that came third in 1981 is still used in historic racing. And I think that's uh, marvellous. Well, and, and talking to Chris, I think it's nice to know that John got to see it in its in its restored state shortly before he died, which is 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 fantastic. I, the, the one thing that I wasn't aware of, I'd seen lots of stories about how you know John was campaigning the ninety thousand mile uh, five or six year old company car that that he'd driven at, at Alfa Romeo GB. What I hadn't realised was that when that car finally expired. Um, it was replaced by the car that, that Chris has got now, which I believe was his wife Meg's shopping car. So the, the, the heritage of both those cars is just incredible. It is. Uh, John was an amazing guy and he contributed a lot to the club, both in the running of the club, making the club or helping the club move forward. And in particular in the racing side through his own exploits and encouraging others. I know when I started, uh, John was there. Uh, I raced. I I went turned out in races with John and he was very supportive and he was just the sort of guy that you needed to uh, give you advice when you were starting out. A great encouragement to, to know that you're talking to someone who has uh, done so much racing and achieved so much. That's all we've got time for this week but join us again in two weeks time when we'll pick up the conversation and talk about Jonathan's racing career and his role on the board. 
As usual, episode 16 will be available from Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and all good sources of podcasts from 1.30 on October the 11th. So until then, stay safe. <laughs>